This is the best of the Jewish views. Over the next hour, we look back at some of the highlights of 2016. We'll feature some of our favorite guests and our memorable discussions. In this episode, the report into alleged anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, remembering Shimon Peres, and we hear from food critic and jazz pianist Jay Rayner. Welcome along to this edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's not waste any time. Let's get straight into remembering one of the biggest stories to come out of 2016 that affected the Jewish community, the reports of alleged anti-Semitism within the Labour Party. Now, the Labour Party obviously held their inquiry into said allegations, and it was down to author Shami Chakrabarti. News editor from the Jewish News, Justin Cohen, and I went along to meet Shami, and we started by asking her if she was confident that the changes that she'd recommended in her report will be implemented. I certainly hope that the recommendations will be implemented in full. I take heart from the ringing endorsement and support that we heard from the Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn. That's obviously incredibly important. But also from the, the publication of the report in full. There's no, there's no editing or summarising. It's all out there. So I think that will make it hard for anyone to uh, attempt to... Um, undermine the implementation of the report. So uh, at this moment, I, I'm, I'm optimistic, yes. John McDonnell in the last couple of months has suggested that there should be lifetime bans and other community figures have, have suggested that there should be a rule change that would make bans easier. You've specifically said there shouldn't be this time. I'm not going to ask you about any specific cases, but if someone is suspended and they're deemed not to be you know, remorseful in any way, what's the next step? Well, what I've recommended is that we have a range of sanctions going right up to the most serious sanctions, which are either two years suspension or expulsion. Now, expulsion is expulsion. I don't think that the NEC of the Labour Party should be robbed of the discretion to to receive applications for people years into the future. But I have said that the current presumption against letting someone come back within five years is probably a good one. But I, it, it's just not in my human rights or legal thinking to to believe in lifetime bans and lifetime expulsions. I think people should have the opportunity to learn to repent, to to benefit from broader experience and, and, and education. But ultimately, we, we recommend a, a process that's in place. But there should be room for expulsions in, in, oh, in the worst cases. I've made it clear in my report that there must be the power to expel in the most serious cases of breach, including repeated and unrepentant breach. But it is for the NEC to decide over time whether anyone who's uh, expelled might have might have changed their views and their behaviours and be considered for, for, for re-entry. But as I say, the presumption is probably against doing that within five years. There will be some, though, who would have, when they found out that you became a member of the mm. Labour Party, would probably wonder how it was you were able to conduct a truly unbiased report mm. into your findings. Mm. Can you maybe explain your process sure. and how you separated the two? Sure. So my thinking 
was as follows. I've been a Labour supporter for some time. We all have our conscience and, and I believe in voting. We women haven't even had the vote for 100 years yet. So I believe it an ethical duty to vote. So I've always voted and I've been a Labour supporter for, for, for some time. I never joined the party. I was a civil first a civil servant and then the, you know, the, the independent director of Liberty had to be completely politically, party politically neutral. I had finished work at Liberty about a month before I was asked to do this. I was considering joining anyway and then I was asked on the 29th of April at short order you know would you you know would I chair this inquiry I I said yes and then I reflected on how it would look to Labour members if I had to recommend strong medicine why should anybody listen to me making any remote criticisms of people or processes in the Labour Party if I was not considered to be one of them, if I was considered to be, I don't know, a closet conservative or UKIPer or Lib Dem or anything else? Why should people take a strong medicine from, from someone not in the family? And as I felt part of the family, I thought the honest thing to do was to join. Now, I knew that I would take some criticism initially, and I, and I did, and you've all read that. But I hope that now that I've made my recommendations, they can be judged on their own merits. And, and people that are perhaps not completely comfortable with everything that I've said about speech or conduct will at least know that it's well motivated. It is not just right in principle. It's also, in my view, best for the Labour Party to, to live and lead by example. Although you've spent a lifetime tackling these issues, human rights and, and racism and so on, were you surprised in any way by the level of anti-Semitism that you discovered and that you uncovered through this inquiry? Do you know what? I've been very careful not to attempt to, to quantify these things because as a human rights person, my thinking is if a single person feels unhappy, excluded, alienated from their natural political home. That's one person too many. And that was the approach that I adopted from the the outset. And it's on that basis that I've made the recommendation. It's not good enough, you know, if it's only uh, to say, well, it's only a you know, a, a small problem. What we need is to aspire to do better. I'm not making criminal laws here. We already have criminal laws. I'm not making discrimination laws. We already have those. This club can have higher standards and better rules because it is the democratic socialist party of this country and so any racism or anti-semitism or or frankly just uncomradely behavior is just too much and I think you heard Jeremy Corbyn make it absolutely clear that it's not going to be tolerated under his leadership on his watch or in his name. What's the sort of time frame we're looking at in terms of changes being implemented? Well, again, you heard from the leader that the, that the procedural rule changes can be theoretically placed before the party conference in the autumn. But as for the recommendations on guidance and conduct and culture, I don't see why those shouldn't be embraced and welcomed and practised by people as we speak. That would be my hope. They've been ringingly endorsed by the leader. He, he's led by example today, I believe. He's made it absolutely clear what he thinks of epithets, including, you know, modern epithets that have grown up, you know, words like Zio. He's made it absolutely clear that he finds them absolutely intolerable. He has led by example, and I hope that everyone will follow. You will have discovered through your extensive contacts with the Jewish community that there does remain a concern about Jeremy Corbyn's leadership and his past associations and and what he is and will, isn't willing to say on Hamas so far. 
do you think he could go further and that that would send a strong message to those that, that follow him, that support him? And obviously there were many here today. I think he was pretty clear today in both his speech and in the follow-up question that he, he wants to have dialogue and debate and discussion with people, but that doesn't mean that he subscribes to, the, to, to their views. And, of course, I have consulted widely in the party, the parliamentary party, and I, 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 I even interviewed the leader in preparation of this report. And I personally put the sorts of questions to him that you heard the, uh, the journalist put to him, and, and, and I, I believe his answers to be are both candid and sincere. Do you have any concerns that with all of the work that you've put into your reports and your findings, to all the work you've put into your reports and your findings, do you believe that there is a chance that this debacle that is going on within the Labour Party at the moment, questioning Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, is that at risk of undermining any of the work that you've done and implementing any change? I think that Jeremy just put his weight and his commitment behind this report today. And I ask everyone in the party, whatever they want for the future, whatever their traditions or factions within the party, to at least unite around these values. And hopefully the ambition of a more civil discourse can can raise the tone, not just around debates around Israel and Palestine or you know, or Europe or the other debates that got very, very uncivil and heated. I hope that in the debates that lie ahead around the leadership and people can behave a little more kindly and civilly as well. Well, there you are. Shami Chakrabarti, the author of the report into alleged anti-Semitism within the Labour Party, talking about the changes that she recommended should be implemented in a bid to try and combat the problem. One of the other big stories to come out of this year, and in fact has been widely associated with 2016, we have lost so many famous people over the last year. And unfortunately, Israel didn't get away with this either. You may recall that the former president and prime minister Shimon Peres died earlier in 2016. Well, I spoke to Professor Nemi Khazan, who is a member of the Knesset, to find out about Shimon Peres's life. And I started by asking her, what made Shimon Peres such a unique politician? Well, for, Shimon Peres was unique in many respects. He was the longest serving member of Knesset in Israel's history. He served for, uh, I believe it's 48 years. That's a record, and uh, I don't believe anybody will ever, ever meet that record. So he was a veteran of the Knesset. The Knesset, in many respects, was associated with him. I want to add something very important. For much of his career, he wasn't really a parliamentarian. He was a minister. He was head of opposition. He always served in the Knesset but also did something else in the government. I think he was best known in the period I was in the Knesset, and this was a period when he was first Minister of Foreign Affairs under Rabin, then Prime Minister, then Leader of the Opposition. During this entire period, when we knew he was going to speak We went into the plenary and listened. We also knew it would be fascinating and there would be action. Shimon Peres was Shimon Peres. 
it's fair to say that no one else really matched him, did they? And probably never will, as you've rightly identified. How did he fare, would you say, through his career? Because obviously it wasn't always people with the same views as him in power. So he obviously had to, as you rightly identify, he was obviously leader of opposition as well at one stage. He had to adjust quite a lot, didn't he? And he's probably had to adjust more than most other politicians. How did he cope with that? Well, the truth of the matter is that he's a very good politician. And he was a very good minister in many different positions. How did he cope with that? He, he basically went along with what he thought was right to do at a certain time. If I may add, I think it's very important Shimon Peres essentially fulfilled almost every single civilian position in Israel's history during the course of his career. And he made lots of different policies and statements and initiated a series of measures that inevitably made him loved by some and and quite despised by others. The press throughout the world is responding to his death by very nuanced analyses. So if we had to put something in one sentence, which, by the way, is terribly unfair to the complexity and diversity and variety of Perez's actions and activities, I would say that over the years, he has represented everything that is good and mediocre, everything that's brilliant and problematic that has to do with Israeli politics. And I think that's essentially the story of Shimon Peres. So he handled it by just going and doing what he thought was right at certain periods of time. And very clearly, during the last 20 years of his life, his key pursuit, his most important mission in his own eyes, was to achieve the peace that he started with the Oslo process. Well, now that you've mentioned that, what do you think that future politicians, regardless of what side of the fence they are on, could learn from the likes of Shimon Peres? Look, he was a man of vision. I think that nobody will ever be able to take away from him, even his staunchest opponents. He was a man of vision in the sense that he constantly looked towards the future. It's been said time and time again, but it's absolutely correct. I saw him in action. I spoke with him. What happened happened, but he saw the mission of a public servant to improve and to make tomorrow better than today. And there's something tremendously refreshing very, very important and inherently optimistic about the way he thought and how he operated. But he was also a skilled politician and he knew how to turn 
the vision into practice, although he didn't always succeed. What's the mood like in Israel at the moment? How has the nation reacted to his passing? Well, different groups have reacted in different ways, but I I would say that Shimon Peres lived long enough that he could enjoy a period of grace because throughout his political career, he was extremely controversial. He suffered immense setbacks. He never really won an election to the prime minister position. And during the seven years he was president of Israel, he succeeded the role of leader and unifier and he received the love of Israelis for many walks of life as a result. So I would say that even those who didn't agree with him, definitely those who agreed with him, not only feel the loss, but understand deeply that Shimon Peres was a leader of Israel with all its unique achievements and all its many flaws. In other words, he has succeeded, and we feel it today more than ever before, in gaining the respect of the citizens of the state. Remembering the life of Shimon Peres, who died earlier on this year. That was Professor Nemi Khazan talking to me there. Well, it's not all doom and gloom and serious news here on The Jewish Views. Once in a while, we like to bring you something in the way of entertainment. And that normally falls upon our entertainment and culture reporter, Kate Fulton. And she's been talking to some very impressive names over the past year. One of them just happens to be food critic and jazz pianist, would you believe, Jay Rayner. He was talking to Kate about his forthcoming shows. Now, during this interview, you may notice a little bit of a racket going on in the background. And that's because Kate went to go and catch up with Jay Rayner at the Ivy Club, if you please. So there you have, that explains the background noise. And it just goes to show the life that Kate leads on behalf of this programme. She started by asking Jay to tell her exactly what he was doing on the stage. I'm doing two shows. So one is a show about terrible restaurant experiences called My Dining Hell, in which I take people through some of my worst ever dining experiences and why we like negative restaurant reviews. And I also share terrible reviews of my own work. You stand there and you read them? I use PowerPoint as a second performer on stage with me. So there's basically the two of us, me and the, me and the, the screen, me and the screen, and uh, bits of my own terrible reviews come up. Just little snippets, enough for you to know that someone hated me. And I read those out as well, because it's important to balance things up. So there's that, and then I also, I have a jazz quartet. Is you're a musician as well? I've recently allowed myself to call myself a musician, yes. I play jazz piano, and I do, uh, we do songs about food, and songs about agony as well, because my mother Claire, late mother Claire, was an agony aunt, and a lot of blues songs sound like letters to agony aunts. So I've got those two shows, and then sometimes, as is going to happen at the Kingston Rose and the Auburn Arena, I put the two together. So you get My Dining Hell in the first half and Jazz in the second. It's a whole evening with me. Can you expand a bit more about the jazz element? How did that all come in? 
It was totally accidental. I played jazz piano for a very, very long time, about 30 years from when I, when I was a kid. Very badly, it has to be said. But we're in the Ivy Club, and downstairs in the uh, bar, there is a piano there, and on Friday nights they have jazz trios. And the guy who r- runs the music here n- knew that I played, and one night he got me to sit in with other musicians. First time in my life. We were talking about five years ago. And it was the most thrilling thing. I'd been on live TV that night, I'd done the one show, and my heart hadn't moved, and now suddenly I was playing with other musicians, and it was the most thrilling thing. And so I determined that I would do more of it. And we ended up doing an hour-long show at Jewish Book Week. We were invited by Jewish Book Week to do a show, and it built from there. And I have sort of determined that I'd, I'd do as much as I possibly can. I am not the greatest pianist in the world. We just got a very nice review from The Times. They gave us four stars. So no one will mistake Jay Rayner for Oscar Peterson, which is absolutely true. But I work with very good musicians. We have very careful arrangements. And food and drink is a brilliant area for us. So songs like Black Coffee, One for My Baby, which is the ultimate drunk song, and Save the Bones for Mr. Jones. And then... There are songs which are drawn from my mother's life as an agony aunt and stories I can tell about Claire, which I never told when she was alive. A lot of the time because I feared people would think I'd got where I am today through nepotism, but she's been gone five years and I think I'm quite secure now. So there's a lot of jazz tunes that play on that agenda and a lot of great stories and it's it's just a lot of fun. How wonderful. And also about you. Yeah. (laughs) It's part of a book. You're saying you're sort of backing the show into a book. Well, no. what, What happened was... The reason the performance happened was because I got very, very bored and irritated by literary festivals. So I'd write a book, and then you'd have to go to a literary festival and sit between two palm you know, rubber plants, and somebody who hadn't read the book properly would interview you, and it felt like you'd been shortchanging the audience, and shortchanging me, because I wouldn't get paid. And I thought, there has to be a better way. So a few years ago, I published a book called A Greedy Man in a Hungry World, and I put together my first show for that. And it turned into a thing. I found myself touring small theatres, some medium-sized theatres. Fabulous. It's a concept we've never heard of. And, it, and it, was, it was mine, and I loved it for being mine. So sometimes if I do it as a whole evening, you'll get the performance bit for 45 minutes, send them to the bar, and then 30 minutes of Q&A. And I realised that that one was coming to the end of its life after about two years. But I also noticed that it was quite an important money earner. <laughs> So I decided to do another one. I'd done an e-book called My Dining Hell, 20 Ways to Have a Lousy Night Out, which was a collection of 20 of my most negative reviews, restaurant reviews. And so I decided to make a show from that book. And then we actually published the book in print form as well. That's an odd reversal. You don't normally go digital to print, and that's what we did. And so, yeah, it's become a part of my working life. And as it happens, My Dining Hell will be retired probably by the early summer and then in June I will be launching a new show based on the book that I am literally finishing now called The Ten Food Commandments. I play Moses. I'm getting a Moses. Of course you are. I'm surprised you're not God actually. No, I've got a plan for God. God is going to turn up in that but we can talk about that in in a moment. There is a book but the show is not just a reading of the book it is a show it's a performance I'm, I'm talking to you now I'm sitting it with you in the in the Ivy Club which is wonderful am I in the Ivy Club? You're, you're in the Ivy Club so the Ivy restaurant that everybody knows is on the corner of West Street and then back behind it around, there's a membership we? club private membership club which is basically a, you know, a bit of a smarmy West End club. So I'm in this smarmy West End club and I'm yeah. talking to you and you seem such a nice chap. <laughs> and I don't understand how you would want to style yourself as a kind of Simon Cowell of restaurants. And why is it 
okay to be unkind or mean to people, rip apart their livelihood and maybe say things that are going to have such a huge impact. There are a number of things to say. The first one is, I don't, I don't style myself as anything. There's, there was a reference on Wikipedia, my Wikipedia entry, that said he has the supercate acid rainer, which I thought was very funny, but I didn't know where, where, where it had come from. I've never Wikipedia. Been, it was Wikipedia. I've never been able to find the source. The negative reviews are about a fifth of what I do. So if you look at my restaurant reviews in The Observer on a yearly basis... Well, that's basis, what you're known for. That's what it sort of... Well, it, it may be, but it's a very odd thing. There are only about nine out of 50 which are really, really But your negative. whole show is based around that. Yes, because if I did a show called My Dining Heaven, nobody would be interested. People like negative narratives. Now, why do I write them? I don't pick on people individually. I don't pick on waiters. I don't pick on specific named chefs on a personal basis. But if you are paying £100 a head for dinner, you have the right to expect something good. It's a lot of money, an awful lot of money. And if it's not good, somebody needs to say so. Uh, often it's very personal, though. What You had a bad experience. You sat next to someone that was noisy. Someone's phone went I've off. I've been doing this job for over 15 years. And I believe me, I don't base it on someone's phone going off or me having had a bad day. And the other thing I would say is, I write books, as, as you know. I'm on my ninth now. And my books get reviewed. I do not question anybody's right to review my books. I have no right to question it, even if they get really personal. Because it's an enormous privilege to write books for a living. And you cannot then expect anybody to go, round of applause, you filled a load of pages. Moving, moving away from that, you're growing up years, you're, you're Jewish, we're on, on Jewish radio. Yeah. Your mother was a household name, very much loved, Claire Rayner. Did she encourage you? Was there a, was it, and was there a Jewish element to your background? There was accidentally a very strong Jewish element to my background, which was... If we start on one side, which was it was a non-believing, non-kosher household. My father insisted on that I was a mitzvah because he said you only regret things you didn't do, and actually he was right on that. I'm glad that I was real reformed Jews, so you know, on the softer edge of things. Culturally, I look back and I can say that in the noise and the banter around the table and the relations and the food, we were you know a Jewish household in that sense. But what happened was we moved house and I moved school at the same time and I ended up with no friends. Should we have a moment's silence for this sad story? And actually my parents were quite desperate. And so at the age of 12, they packed me off to Shemesh, which was the summer camera of Reform Synagogue. And I came back with a small, intimate circle of just 250 friends, exclusively Jewish. And from then until about the age of 15, 16, that was the case. All my friends were Jewish. I look back at it with a slightly curious air. It was a cultural thing that united us. So in that sense, yes. And I came, and in the end, I wrote a whole novel about it, Day of Atonement, which is... Were you writing it while you were at school? No, 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 I wrote it uh, in my early 30s. We re-released it as an e-book recently, because it had never been an e-book. It was published in 98, I think, and that was the story of Northwest London Jewry. So... There is no God in my universe. I am face down in the pig. But there is no doubt that it's been a part of my upbringing. 
food critic and apparently jazz pianist as well, Jay Rayner, talking to entertainment and culture reporter Kate Fulton there about his shows that he was performing earlier on in the year. Just a reminder that obviously that interview did take place earlier in 2016 and therefore it doesn't necessarily mean that tickets are still available. So if you are thinking of going to see his show, I'm afraid you may well be too late. But do keep an eye out. You never know. He might be reprising the show's once in a while in the future or indeed during 2017. Well, one of the other people that Kate got the chance to speak to during 2016 was Britain's Got Talent star Darren Altman. Now, he's more commonly known as a voice artist, but of course he went on Britain's Got Talent to show off his wide range of impersonations. And Kate got the chance to speak to him and some of his alter egos as well. She started by asking Darren, how did he feel before stepping out onto the famous Britain's Got Talent stage? Nervous, in a word. <laughs> Incredibly nervous. It's not something I do, as as you know, I'm a voiceover artist. So there's a world of difference between, you know, what I do in the booth on a day-to-day basis and then going out in front of 3,000 people at the Dominion Theatre and or even, you know, 10 million people as in the semi-finals. So, yeah, I don't have any sort of training, really. I'm not like one of these people you see on there that's been gigging for years up and down and all around. So it was, uh, yeah, it was incredibly nerve-wracking. Because it, the stage is huge and the place is huge and you've just got your voice to, to take you through. Did you have any, any training for the sort of stage presence? Not really. Well, no, no training. I mean, obviously work hard on all my impressions and the voices and, you know, drilling down into the intricacies and and the details of of all the people I'm I'm impersonating. But in terms of stage presence, no, you just, as you do one voice and move on to the next, you know, you just try and become the person, you know, because you've seen enough YouTube and, and, and TV footage of them. So you just try and become them and get into the character. And I suppose that's where the stage presence is, really. Obviously, you must have been a bit disappointed at the at the outcome. You did amazingly, and you must be very pleased of how how it went up to then. I am pleased. I mean, I, I won't lie. I'm sort of kicking myself now a bit just because what I wanted out of that semi final didn't. I didn't sort of attain what I aspired to get, which was a place in the final. You know, I never thought I'd I'd, I'd win the thing for for a moment but I just you know I just wanted to to get into that final and I I'm you know sadly I didn't get that and and the comments regarding the semi-final act and the staging were not what I thought they would be I thought that they would love the fact that I I I dared to try something different you know than than any other impressionist has has done before on that show but you're a household Uh, name now I mean you must you must be pleased not really I mean come on you know you are we're very proud of you you're one of ours (laughs) I mean, the thing is, I'm I'm a realist, you know. It's 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 15 minutes of fame, isn't it? If you do, unless unless you sort of do really really well, and don't get me wrong, I've got every intention of trying to leverage this and you know maximize you know what I, what I can get and, and 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 do the best I can out of it. But you know, it's a, it's a competition at the end of the day. I mean, how did you get into impressions in the first place, impersonations? Well, it's that thing, you know. When I was a young boy, I mean, I'm showing my age now, but you know, I used to do, you know. Frank Spencer and Tommy Cooper and John Wayne and and I've always you know impersonated friends and teachers and um, I'm a musician actually I studied music uh, drums and uh, jazz drums in music colleges all over the place Leeds the Guildhall and Trinity College of Music and later became a voiceover artist but I've always had a really good ear I've just had a knack which is your favorite one to imitate go on give us one let's see um, if we can guess uh, who can I do? When you do this guy, you have to talk about things like and horsepower. 
Excellent. Even I got that one, and I didn't even particularly watch the programme. <laughs> <laughs> so he, I get asked to do him a lot, and, and here we can see the barn owl swooping majestically towards its prey silently. I never thought I'd be interviewing Attenborough. That's great. You know, I get three for the price of one here. There you go. When you you were saying you were doing um, you were doing stories, or you were, you were throwing yourself into all the different parts. What was that yes. all about? Tell me about the about the stories. I love stories and reading. What you mean uh, on Aloud. the VT? Yeah. Oh, I think that yeah, that was just about uh, reading my daughter bedtime stories and doing all the vo- you know she says, "Daddy, do all the voices, do the voices." So um, I think that was what they were alluding to. But in terms of the impressions, you know, just really trying to get get dig deep into all the characters and the voices and trying to get as close and as real as as, as possible as I could get. Did you ever do radio? I mean, in fact, a radio play it could be all the parts because nobody would ever know. Well, sometimes I get asked to do adverts or, or web videos and stuff and get to, you know, they say, can you do all three or all four characters? And I say, well, yeah. So, you know, I got something today and they want me to demo three characters for one video. And it's, you know, as long as you send, they send me the brief and, and what they want, then, yeah, I'm happy to always. Excellent. And where's your future going to take you? What's next? Well, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm doing well at my voiceover career. I'm making lots of radio ads and TV and web videos and radio imaging and, and documentaries. I do I do lots of different stuff. But, you know, like we were talking about, I think that off the back of this, I, I, I presented something for the National Lottery, which was great. It was a proper two-camera shoot and a crew there. That went down really well. Apparently, it's got well over a million views. I got to voice with the original Zippy and George puppets uh-huh. from Temps. They brought that in for me to do uh, something for the National Lottery, which was amazing. You've got to so, say goodbye to me from Z- in Zippy. Would you mind? I loved him. <laughs> well, 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 it was lovely talking to you. Yes, it was lovely talking to you. Yes. And I'd hope to see you soon. Yes, yes. Bye, 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 bye. Goodbye. Excellent. Thank you, Dan. <laughs> well, there you go. That was Kate talking to not only Darren Altman, but apparently also Zippy and George, possibly a bit of Jeremy Clarkson and David Attenborough as well. Who knew? I don't know how many people she was speaking to in that interview, but the very impressive Darren Altman talking to entertainment and culture reporter Kate Fulton there about his time on Britain's Got Talent. Now, one of the other things that we like to feature on The Jewish Views is stories from the Jewish community. And let's be honest, there's hardly a week that goes by when there isn't something to talk about or some member of the community has achieved something one way or another. Joshku Jennison managed to achieve a very impressive fundraising feat just because he was so inspired by his bar mitzvah, he wanted to make sure that children less fortunate than himself got the chance to celebrate their bar mitzvahs as well. Well, Diana Toman is our community reporter and she went along to go and meet Joshku and his mum, Alison. She started by asking Joshku, what is it that he did in a bid to raise the money? What I did is I cycled to the near canal and one day I cycled 25 miles down the canal and the next day I cycled 25 miles the other way along the canal. And were you sponsored per mile by people, or how did you raise the money? I sent out a sponsorship to ev- all of what, everyone I know, friends and family, and um, I had this website that Chabed put up for me, which my grandpa is a member of the committee there. How much did you raise altogether? £2,500. That's an amazing amount of money. Tell me where it went. Do you know where it went? Me and my mum bought cross pens 
for all the boys and girls with their names engraved in it and also some notepads with their names in, which we gave to them when we got there. And also what they wore on the day, the mitzvah outfit and also the party outfit we paid for. Tell me who they are. The Bermitzvah children in Carmiel, um, there's uh, seven girls and 15 boys. Who were going to have their bar and bat mitzvahs? Yes. In Israel? Yes. Right, and tell me a little bit about Carmiel. Carmiel is a children's home or village um, with lots of different homes that lots and lots of children from broken homes be it drugs or abuse, they go there and they know what they experience what it's like to be in a family environment with them. Like they have like sort of foster parents that live in the village, and they take several children and they ha- they raise them like a family, and they also get psychiatric help. And I gather you've had an award of some sort. Yeah, I got a certificate from Carmiel. And I have received the Jack Petchy Award that my synagogue put me up for. Who's your synagogue? Um, EDRS. Which Edgeware is? Edgware District Reform Synagogue. Edgeware District Reform Synagogue. Fine. Alison is, is, is Joshua's mother, and she's smiling at me at the moment. I imagine you must be very proud of him. I am very proud of him, yeah. What does this mean to you, Alison? I think what's important for me is how he realised how lucky he is to have all the things that he had and have a lovely bar mitzvah party and to realise not everyone's quite so lucky in the world and, and to increase his awareness of children in other circumstances that are less fortunate than him and to want to do something to help them, to give something back. And, you know, the whole thing about having a bar mitzvah and becoming a man and learning, you know, what that means in terms of being responsible, I think that it deepened his whole journey and understanding of of becoming a man being responsible and doing something you know for others I I think that was a really you know really important part of that rite of passage did you feel that even more once you got to Israel yeah I did it was amazing being in the village during their bar mitzvah and I felt like really proud of myself for like make to make their day so much more special did they have their bar and bat mitzvahs all on the same day or were you covering them all as it were they all had a joint bar and bat mitzvah on the same day. Oh, did they? Right. Yes. And I, me and my mum had planned to go to Israel on that day anyway. And when we asked when the bar mitzvah was, it just so happened that it was on the same day. Or same, it was whilst we were out there. And did it coincide with your bar mitzvah? I mean, was it before or after yours? It was after mine. It was after yours. My bar mitzvah was in February and theirs was in April. I see. So it was like two months after mine, but it was pretty, it was amazing. How would you like to see this going forward? What would you like, what what do you think, Alison, about how you could influence people to do the same thing all over again for their bar mitzvahs or bat mitzvahs indeed? I think we we both, Joshua and I, got so much out of it that I would love other parents and other bar mitzvah children to experience what we experienced. And I'd also love to see particularly Carmiel have support ongoingly they're going to have this every year they're going to have a group of children becoming bar mitzvah and I would love for them to have the kind of support and help to make you know future years as special as the one that we were able to contribute to so I you know I think it's a win-win 
A very impressive young member of the community there, Josh Koo Jennison and his mum Alison talking to community reporter Diana Toman there about what he did to try and raise money for children less fortunate than himself. Well, one of the other people that Diana Toman got the chance to speak to this year was historian Keith Pearce. He was speaking about Penzance Jewish Cemetery. I know, I didn't know it existed either. That was one of the fascinating things that we learned from this year, is that there is indeed a cemetery in Penzance that is a Jewish cemetery and that was in a bit of a state of disrepair. Luckily, it had received a grant, and that is why he was speaking to us on the programme. He was speaking about how the money was raised and what it was going to be spent on. So, Diana started by asking Keith to tell us a little bit about the history of Penzance Jewish Cemetery. There are 25... Georgian Jewish cemeteries that date from the early to mid-18th century. And of those, the Penzance Jewish Cemetery is regarded by English heritage and indeed by Jewish heritage as being the finest and best preserved of all of them. Who maintains it? It's maintained by the Penzance Town Council and it's also looked after by the Penley House museum in Penzance and I act as the voluntary custodian and the main key holder but there is as it were a network of protection locally to look after it and the local town council have recognised for quite a few years that it's a very important historical site within the town. These would be volunteers would they? Yes. The people who maintain it? Well the town Mm. council there is a town clerk's office and they have a, a permanent professional staff, including groundspeople, who help maintain it. And the Penley Museum, of course, are also professionals. So I'm a, I am a volunteer, and there is an organisation called the Friends of the Penzance Jewish Cemetery, and they consist of local volunteers. But it's a mixture of professional and voluntary groups. I see. And is it a closed cemetery or are there new graves in there as well? No, it is a closed cemetery. When did it close? Well, this is a difficult question to to answer, but the last burial of a member of the historic Jewish community was in 1911. And there were only about two spaces left after that burial. And there was a burial in 1964 of someone who must have obtained special permission for a burial. And there has been another interment since then, but it it, it is effectively closed for any further burials in that there is no remaining space. I see. Now, you've just been given, haven't you, quite recently, a large grant from the Heritage Lottery Fund. Tell us a bit about that. Yes, the fundraising for the restoration work... It was preceded by listed planning application because it's a grade two listed site. That was the the planning application was successful. And the person who spearheaded all of the the raising of the funds is a man called Leslie Lippert, who happens to be both the treasurer of the Jewish community in Cornwall, which was established about 15 years ago. And he's also the treasurer of the Friends of the Jewish Cemetery. And We received about £13,000 from the Heritage Lottery Fund, but the rest was from Cornish Heritage Foundations and from private donations, both from Jewish and non-Jewish people, 
And some of the Jewish people have forebearers who are, have been laid to rest in the cemetery. And many of the local people who are not Jewish gave towards the restoration fund because, again, they recognize it's a very important local historical site. So it's been a mixture. It's been a cooperative enterprise, really, between Jewish organizations and non-Jewish organizations. That's a very heartwarming thought, actually, isn't it, that the, the non-Jews should participate in the fundraising as well as the Jews for a Jewish cemetery. Yes, and there's another minor sort of background to this. The person who looked after the cemetery before me, who is a very close friend of mine and who is Jewish, was called Godfrey Simmons. And Godfrey is now in his mid-90s and he lives in Worcestershire. But when he was no longer able to look after the cemetery, I offered to look after it. The cemetery is owned, incidentally, by the Board of Deputies of British Jews in London. And I offered to look after it. And I think it's also uh, relevant that Godfrey was Jewish and I'm not Jewish. You're not Jewish. I hadn't realized that. Both my wife and I are honorary or associate members of the local Jewish community in the sense that we are subscribers and we support it. But no, I'm not Jewish. What is the size of the present Jewish community, perhaps not just in Penzance, but in Cornwall at large? Well, I think that the Jewish community, which is, you're quite correct, scattered across Cornwall, they meet in Truro, which is our main city. There are, I think, something in the region of 50 to 60 families in, uh, associate, uh, formally associated with the, with the Jewish community. So it has developed and grown extremely successfully over the last 15 years. But, of course, from that, one can't easily estimate you know, how many Jews are actually living in Cornwall now who may have no connection with the, with the formal Jewish congregation. I see. Because of a lack of synagogues, do you think? There is no synagogue as such anymore. And I think quite sensibly because of the difficulties of maintaining a building when you only have 40 or 50 families in a community, the Jewish community have always used other buildings. They've used a Baptist church, to meet in in Truro, and they also use a schoolroom in Truro. I see. Keith, finally, can you give us some information about where people can go to find out a little bit more about the cemetery and indeed about the grant? Yes, the cemetery has its own website. You can either Google Penzance Jewish Cemetery or you can type in penzancejewishcemetery.org.uk and there's a lot of information about the cemetery on the website, including photographs. And the website also has details of my book, which I produced in 2014, The Jews of Cornwall, A History. And that book has complete headstone translations for all of the headstones in the cemetery and biographies of the people who are buried there. And the website also has details of a smaller booklet which I produced, which is a concise history and guide to the cemetery, where, together with detailed plans and photographs. Historian Keith Pearce talking to Diana Toman there about the Penzance Jewish Cemetery. 
One of the other major features on the Jewish Views is, of course, our Jewish Schmooze, hosted by the one and only Clive Roslin and co-hosted by our intrepid producer Adam Bradley. Many a discussion has taken place over the last year, and one of the more fascinating ones that featured was the subject of conversion to and from Judaism. It featured Jane Goff and Tony Green as the contributors, and we joined this conversation after Clive asked Jane why was it that she. She wanted to convert to Judaism, and how did she go about it? It was something that I never thought I could do all my life. All my life, I was brought up in the East End of London, and so I was amongst a huge community of Jewish people of all kinds of denomination, and I was always drawn to watch them, if you will, or kind of befriend my neighbours. I lived in a block of flats and we had several Jewish families there and I just wanted so much to be part of their families. So if my mother ever needed to find me, she would go to one of our neighbours knowing I'd be there. And it was through one particular neighbour, called we called her Nanny Schneider, and she was very elderly. Her English was quite hard to understand but she took me to the synagogue she was the one that showed me the kindling the shabbat lights the mezuzah on a door she tried to explain what it was for and i felt a sort of very strong connection but being a young girl it didn't ring true that this would be the life that i would want so i just enjoyed that until i moved out of the east end i'd always been i suppose a spiritual person i'd always looked for a spiritual answer or something bigger than me, a God, if you will, but not a God that I was brought up in school with, you know, this big old man in the sky. And Did you have much religious influence of any type? I did, yeah. My father and mother were non-religious. So my father was Catholic, but non-practicing. My mother was Anglican. But my father was asked by his father to send us to Catholic school. So when we were about six, we were suddenly dragged out of this primary school into this church school where we met a God of sort of terror, of horror, of sin. And, you know, and it was quite scary. Mm. And so and we I was at Catholic school until I was about 16. So how old were you when you converted? I converted September 2015, so I'm a year converted. Oh, it's only as recent as that? Yeah, yeah. I studied for a couple of years with the West London Synagogue. I did their conversion course. I never thought that I could convert to Judaism. I always thought you were either born Jewish or, and that was it. You couldn't sort of join it. It wasn't a particular club that you could join Catholicism or Methodism. Or no, the Jews are very much against yeah. against conversion. But, uh, yeah, my experience at first was I rang a few places and were told that uh, nope, not at all, not any way, shape or form. In fact, I was married and my husband didn't wish to convert, was a no-no. But I started going to services in synagogues just to experience that atmosphere and I read an awful amount. And But now I, you feel totally Jewish. I hope I do. <laughs> I mean, do Tony, do any of us? Do any of us, yeah. You're the other way around, aren't you? Yes. You, you've moved from being Jewish to being Buddhist. Well... Yes, or no. Do, are you both? Well, in a way, I am. A lot of my friends call me a jubu. Um, 
I never practiced Judaism, so I don't in a way see myself as having converted. I was from a typical Jewish family that we had the Friday nights. I can still do the prayers for the wine and the bread. If I was somewhere, I would do them quite happily. But when I was about 14 or 15, my father, who who didn't, you know, was very much Jewish, but didn't really believe, said, it's up to you now. You decide whether you continue going to synagogue. I only went for Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah. And I immediately decided I didn't want to go because I didn't really get anything out of it. Um, I was very much paraded by my mother in new outfits and, you know, as I think a lot of Jewish mothers do. So I didn't go and I never felt comfortable being in synagogue. But the strange thing is, since I've been a Buddhist, it's been a complete shift that I can actually enjoy going to synagogue now. I can respect Jewish views in the way that I never used to. So in a strange way, you feel now more Jewish than you did before. Well, I don't know if I feel more Jewish. I I certainly am very committed to my Buddhist practice, but weird things have happened since I've been a Buddhist and I've created this Jewish mother character, this stand-up act. I've presented on Jewish radio stations. I've taught in Jewish schools. So it's quite strange how all these Jewish things have happened. And I've met more Jewish people since I've been a Buddhist than when I was not Mm. a Buddhist. That's very interesting. First of all, I just want to say, I don't think Jews are against conversion. I just don't think they encourage it. I think there is a difference there because, as hopefully you found that when you've proved your commitment, or not that you have to prove it, but once your commitment's been seen and, and really understood, my father's a convertee, my brother's wife has converted as well. And from my experiences, I've found is that they're very welcoming once... They realise this isn't just someone jumping on a bandwagon or, or just trying to do what the, you've the said, shallow actually, basics. I, I, must, I must now, from what you've said, just repeat two stories which prove what you're saying is quite correct. I'm going to say my own family, my brother, fell in love with and got engaged to a non-Jewish woman. My father was absolutely horrified. And so as not to upset my father, this woman agreed to become Jewish. She went to Dayan Toledano, who was a Sephardi Dayan, and was in the middle of conversing her. My father suddenly took terrible fright to the fact that she mightn't really be willing to become a Jewish. She only wanted to become Jewish to marry my brother. And he whisked her off to Israel and had her converted in three weeks in Israel, brought her back, married her. She got married in Israel, and until she died, sadly, well, my brother got divorced, but until she died, she was still called a Jewess, but in fact wasn't. I mean, her conversion to Judaism was simply to marry my brother, Mm -hmm. and it, it didn't work. Equally, I know another couple, a very famous Jewish family, one of the one of their sons, Anglo-Jewish family, one of their sons fell in love with a niece of a bishop and she agreed to become Jewish, but she meant to do it seriously. And so she went to Australia to live with a completely, utterly religious Jewish family and lived with them in Australia for three years and then had a complete Jewish conversion. Now, sadly, her husband is no longer with us, but she is a widow. She still keeps a kosher house. She comes to synagogue most Shabbats. And she is, as the Nisa Bishop, she is one of the most Jewish, religiously Jewish women that I know. In fact, her own father-in-law was quite horrified when she got married because she was much more religious. (laughs) Yeah, but you do find that. That that, that is a phenomenon that's quite apparent, that convertees 
because they've had to commit they've had to show they've had to dedicate i i was born jewish i've had it easy i haven't had to commit i haven't had to really focus on studying and really take in all the aspects of judaism Mm. whereas converties you find their knowledge is phenomenal because they've had to learn it and they wanted to learn it. Which that, that's, yeah. Strangely yeah. enough, it works the other way as well because there was a very famous archbishop. He was called Archbishop Seabag Montefiore. Oh. Yes, And he course. came from the Seabag Montefiore family. He became a Christian, obviously, but he always called himself a Jewish Christian. Yeah. <laughs> really? Even as an archbishop, <laughs> yeah. which is quite extraordinary. And the same is true of Disraeli. Of course. He always called himself a Jewish Christian. And it was true of some of the composers who converted mm. to Christianity because they wanted to make names for themselves mm. in the world mm. of music. That's um, funny. That kind of brings us on to the idea that's often spoken about that can a Jewish soul ever change? Because well, if, from what I've read, if you're Jewish, you're Jew- you cannot convert away from Judaism. What do you mean, a Jewish soul? So, what do you mean by that? As in... We all have, oh God, how do I get into this sort of esoteric idea of the soul and the essence of a human and a Jew? Everywhere we read in in the Torah, it explains that we are different. All all people are different. We have a different soul. Mm. Jews have a different soul from other people on the planet, from other animals, from other living creatures, from everything. When you convert, your soul is what's becoming Jewish. It's Mm. not your body. It's not your eyes. It's not your legs. It's your soul is changing. That soul cannot change back. I don't make the rules up on it. This is is just what I've learned and what I've heard and, and heard people talk about. But you can't change your soul back from being Jewish. If you're Jewish, Montefiore, Disraeli, they can convert. But you don't use that. I, I actually... Use that. Yeah. I, There's another I... side to that as well, because I have a grandson who my son married out, and his, this boy has been brought up as nothing. And yet he's now in his early 20s, and he said to me one day, do you know something? I may not be Jewish, I may have a Jewish father, but I have a Jewish soul, mm. and I have never forgotten mm. what he mm. said. But you, and your, that follows mm. up some of what you're saying, I think. Mm. But your essence mm. is your essence. I mean, my essence, as you say, not my body, is what it always has been. It's changed a lot since I've been a Buddhist. All the challenging things, that you know, there are great things about the Jewish race. There are also the things, I think we might have talked about last time, about the sort of the neurosis and the worrying, Yeah, and that, is, you know, that is something that's transformed since I've been a Buddhist. That's my essence. I mean, is that mm. when you're talking about Jewish soul? I, I mean, I don't know. I mean... Well, the idea I, is it's said that you, the Jewish souls have a particular place in the world to come. Because I remember being uh, told when my mm, father had mm. converted and was had converted via reform... Some people quite nastily said to me, you know, your dad won't be in heaven with you. Yeah, <laughs> you see, that's so, not my belief in Wow. So, you know, to yeah. me, that was quite, mm. quite hurtful. It's so, Jane, do you believe then that you had always a Jewish soul I somewhere think, inside uh, you? Yes, I think so. One of the problems I had with myself was that I felt unworthy. I thought I can't actually, because there is something you take on being Jewish. Just one of a number 
of the fascinating conversations that have taken place over the course of the last year. And that's all the Jewish views I'm afraid we have time for for this particular episode. Thanks very much indeed to the guests who featured. They were, of course, Shami Chakrabarti, Professor Nemi Khazan, Jay Rayner, Darren Altman, Josh Kujunison and his mum Alison, Keith Pierce, and of course, the Schmooze team were Jane Goff and Tony Green. Thank you also to our producers of this programme. They are Sue Greenberg and Adam Bradley. And of course, thank you very much to you at home for listening. Don't forget that you can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk. And you can listen to all previous editions by searching for us in iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with the Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next week when we continue looking back at the best bits of 2016 here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.